This message comes from NPR sponsor Osea. Their Mega Moisture Duo features two of their clean, vegan bestsellers, Undaria Algae Body Oil and Undaria Collagen Body Lotion. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. I hate being startled and I hate feeling scared, even in situations where I know that it's all pretend and I'm not in any real danger. For that reason, I've avoided watching most horror movies, if not all of them. But science writer Nina Nesseth wanted to change my mind on the genre, and she picked out a scene for us to watch together. This scene in particular from The Exorcist 3 is pretty famous. People who love horror movies have told me how scary The Exorcist is, so this doesn't exactly feel like a starter movie for a pansy like me. One of the most effective plays on tension, building tension, releasing it in small amounts and then paying off with a fantastic jump scare. Okay, like I said, I hate being startled, so this famous jump scare may be my first and last. We queue up the movie, and Nina sets the scene. We are in a quiet hospital at night. It's the night shift, and there are very few people around. Okay. And I think that's all you need to know going in. I'm already feeling scared. <laughs> so as far as I'm concerned, we could leave it right there. I'm just checking my heart rate. I feel like, like, not even kidding, I feel like my heart rate is already a little bit elevated. So you see this nurse standing at the nurse's station at the hospital ward. It's very quiet. There's no music, no dialogue. It's eerie. And then the nurse starts hearing strange noises, very faint. She's hearing stuff. Oh, God. What's happening? I don't like this. The noise is a slight rattling, and it seems to be coming out of one of the patient rooms. So the nurse decides to check it out. She slowly opens the door, walks into the room, looks around. I'm feeling really tense watching her. Then she spots a glass of ice water rattling on the bedside table. Ah, okay, she's like, oh, okay, it was the ice. She looks relieved, but as she bends down to grab the glass... Oh, my God. What the hell do you want? Bad enough you wake me up at half past five for breakfast. It's just an annoyed patient who jumps out of bed and yells at the nurse for waking him up. False alarm. Oof. Okay, so my heart is like settling back down a little bit. (sighs) Then the weird noises come back. And I know something else is about to happen. I'm feeling so tense. The nurse goes into another patient room to check on this noise. She comes back out. She's closing the door. (gasps) What? (gasps) What? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Some terrifying-looking creature draped in white appears out of nowhere, chasing her with a sharp weapon. Oh, my God. What was that even? Uh, yeah, a strange figure that they never really explain in the <sighs> film. Um, 
Uh, holding scissors <laughs> to chop off her head. Ugh. Okay, so I was laughing at the end there, and I guess I can understand why people enjoy the tingling sensation of fear and anticipation followed by relief. So when you rile up the animal inside, there is a sense of excitement, right? That's fear researcher Arash Javanbacht. You have the heart pounding and the whole, like, breathing heavily and being hyper alert and focused on something. The same experience you have when you do some exciting physical activities or even when you're in love. But then there's a sense of control here. Fear usually indicates the presence of a serious threat, but in the right setting, you're in charge, getting all of the thrills without any real danger. It can feel exhilarating, fun, exciting. It can even serve as fuel to make us focus or perform better. On this episode, a look at fear and how it overlaps with other, more pleasurable emotions. First up, let's stick with horror movies for a bit. What makes them scary and for whom? Science writer Nina Nesseth has a new book out. It's called Nightmare Fuel, The Science of Horror Films. She told me she started watching horror movies as a teenager. You know, do some late night TV guide reading. Oh gosh, this is how people know how old I am. And trying to find these new movies and watching them all alone in the dark downstairs of my house sitting, you know, a few feet from the TV. Now I, you, you can't take me away from the horror movies. I want, I'll watch any shape uh, or form of the film because I think it's just such a neat and sprawling genre that really touches on some really universal human emotions, but in weird and wacky ways. If you think back to you sitting in the basement or downstairs at your at your house watching those first horror movies in the dark, what was it about that experience that you liked? Because it can also be a profoundly unpleasant experience. <laughs> and that's sort of the paradox of horror, isn't it? That we seek out something that is ostensibly a bad feeling, like Fear and horror and, you know, stress and everything that's sort of like rolled into those experiences are like emotions that are meant to protect us from threats or from different uh, bodily dangers. And yet we regularly seek out horror movies. In my case, I think I, yeah, I wanted to be scared. I don't think I quite knew why. And the funny thing is, is that even looking through all of the research that I did for Nightmare Fuel is that we can't point to exactly one single reason why people enjoy horror movies. There's been research going into different personality types that might lend themselves more to being drawn to horror than others. The results are more that there are different personalities that might be drawn to different kinds of horror, not necessarily that there's one single personality type that is the horror personality. And what do we know about the line between the experience being fun and the experience being not fun? Because there are times when I guess the movie ends and then it's like, ooh, that was great. But then there are also times when people can't shake that movie or it continues to really bother them. And sometimes that can become problematic. So have we learned anything about what the boundary is there? So there's two things there, and one actually touches on the prevailing theory of why we love to watch horror movies, which is known as excitation transfer theory. And so that is the idea that experience arousal or excitation 
from one stimulus, in this case, feeling that sort of like rush of being scared by, by, by a horror movie, can be transferred to a different form of excitation or arousal. So, so that being scared, once you realize that the threat is not actually there and process that, that you can then transfer that adrenaline rush over to a different emotion, such as, you know, enjoyment, um, which is one of the reasons why if you're watching horror movies, especially in a movie theater, you know, everyone jumps and screams at the same time, and then you'll often find that people will start laughing. But when people feel terrified long after the movie is over and they can't shake the experience, there are some research studies on what might help. My favorite one is looking at how we recall that sort of fearful experience and then sort of resave it in our brains as something slightly less threatening. There's one really interesting study that looks at that and disrupts the fear response by having the person experiencing that fear play Tetris. And the act of doing those spatial rotations of the Tetris pieces and kind of moving them into place disrupts how that fear experience is being reconsolidated in the brain. And so the next time it gets pulled up, maybe it won't have as big of a jarring response. We can measure people's reactions to different types of scares through all kinds of, of research techniques. You know, we can measure people's heart rate and and so on. Is that science also informing how horror movies are made? Where, you know, maybe researchers are learning that one certain thing is really scary and then it actually gets used in a film? So... You see oftentimes that there is a um, gimmick that's usually used in promotion of horror films saying that, you know, we sent folks into this movie with, you know, Apple Watches measuring their heart rate and and therefore this movie is very scary because we can show you how often their heart rate jumps up. And usually when we see these things uh, in relation to horror films, it's in a non-research context, it's for, it's for promotion. But there was one film um, a few years ago that is called Pop Skull that was specifically an experimental film by which they used functional MRI, um, so used medical uh, brain scans, to watch brain activity of viewers of the film while they were watching scenes of the movie. And they used analysis from that scan data to sort of adjust the film and to make it hopefully scarier. And it was uh, kind of referred to as neurocinema, <laughs> which I think is cool. <laughs> you watched a lot of different horror movies for the research for your book. Which ones did you find to be the scariest ones? Was it all from one genre or did it depend more on, you know, just the plot? So, yeah, I, I feel like what people find scary in horror movies is so individual but there are some things that are a bit universal, like darkness. Darkness is really scary to a lot of folks. And I think that was put to very effective use for me um, because we were talking about scares that stick with the film Hereditary. It's a 2018 horror movie starring Tony Collette about a family haunted by a menacing presence after the death of their secretive grandmother. It's heartening to see so many strange new faces here today. The themes in the narrative are, are, are also like very relatable for a lot of folks because it's a lot about grief, processing grief and pr processing loss in your family. 
But the part that was scary for me is how that film set up a lot of scenes where there would be someone just out of sight in the shadows. So it really forced your eyes to scan the screen and you were sort of finding your attention shifting to the background to see if there was something back there, just in case. And oftentimes there were, and it was very, very effective. Maybe I should be playing Tetris uh, because (laughs) I think about it all the time when I walk up the stairs and the downstairs is dark behind me. (laughs) Oh, so what, what goes through your head? Specifically, I... I'm afraid that, you know, wonderful award-winning actress Toni Collette is going to be behind me. (laughs) (laughs) And so I just run up the stairs a little bit faster. Nina Neseth is a science communicator and the author of Nightmare Fuel, the science of horror films. Nina just said how she imagines the actress Toni Collette lurking in the shadows and that freaks her out. And we wanted to hear from all of you. What are the fears that haunt you? I would have to say a plane crash. There is something about a plane being in the middle of the air with no safety nets that is just like no bueno to me. I'm Neil Bardhan. I live in South Philadelphia. I have a fear of driving in parking garages. Uh, I'm a comfortable driver in pretty much all other settings, but somehow the artificiality and liminal spaces of a parking garage set my hairs on end. We also heard from Steve Cruz, who grew up in Canada and often spent time in Quebec, where he became afraid of church steeples. Most towns in Quebec have old, very imposing Catholic churches. It would typically have very tall steeples visible from far away. And often these steeples were silver and glinted in the sun. And as you came closer and closer, the steeples would get taller and taller. I somehow managed to convince myself that the church steeple would topple over and crush me and my family in our car. And we got this one from Diana Liu. One of my greatest and most irrational fears is suffocating in space, 2001 Space Odyssey style. My name is Anders, and the fears that I am for some apparently insane reason willing to share with you include the quite ridiculous fear of there being a snake lurking in the toilet bowl whenever I sit upon it, just waiting to dart out to attack my vital infrastructure. We always love to hear from you. Follow us on social media at WHYY The Pulse to stay in touch. There's a challenge that was going around on TikTok related to one of the most famous horror film villains of all time, Michael Myers from the Halloween movies. Here's how it works. Two people stand at the end of a driveway. One person tries to run to the front door of the house to successfully unlock the door, get inside, while the other friend slowly walks toward them as if they were Michael. Doesn't seem that hard, right? But people quickly realize that running away from a fake serial killer isn't that easy. Some of them couldn't get the right key in the door. Others dropped their keys right before the person playing Michael got to them. They were freaking out. And that's what you see in this in these situations that if the fear is too much, 
and when the time is limited, then the person doesn't have the chance to use the logical thinking about what should be done. That's Arash Javanbacht again. He is a psychiatrist and the director of the Stress, Trauma and Anxiety Research Clinic at Wayne State University School of Medicine in Detroit. He studies how people react to threats, even if they are not real. The less logical brain is the primitive brain that basically runs the fear system. And the mismatches because you logically know, okay, the other person is not really Michael Myers, but... The part of the brain which is more primitive believes it. It's like an example I often use is that your dog may see another dog barking on your TV, but may not see the difference between a dog on the TV and a dog in reality and may get riled up. That is the reason why we even enjoy these kind of when we watch the movies. Why do we enjoy the horror movies? Because if we totally knew and understood at all levels of our awareness and the unconscious mind that this is all made up, this is not real, how would we enjoy it or how would we get excited or how would we even be scared? If your logical brain takes over, it's going to ruin the experience. Never forget, I was watching a zombie movie with one of my friends and as a physician, I kept saying, well, look, these zombies don't have a heart pumping the blood, so there's no uh, (laughs) glucose and there is no oxygen getting to these muscles. How are these muscle fibers working? (laughs) <laughs> My friend told me that, listen, you got to shut down your logical cognitive brain if you want to enjoy this movie. And Arash says those fake scary experiences can serve another purpose. So if we imagine the fear system was instilled in us to protect us, we need to practice it. And when you're watching a horror movie, what are you practicing? What do, what do you do all the time? You're like, oh, why don't you do this? Oh, why, why is this guy stupid and do, going there? Oh, no, you should do that. So you're constantly in your mind practicing ways of surviving those situations. So in that sense, these scary experiences are also a fine, kind of a practice of how I would survive if this happened to me, but we do it in a safe environment. And finally, I could say we do it. We, our bodies need exercise because this body was not designed to basically sit at a desk all day long. The way this is the context in which we evolved was a context that we had to be very active. So now when we are not active, it hurts. It basically, it's not good for this body. And that's why we enjoy working out. We are healthier and happier. And I have, I don't have a lot of scientific evidence, but I have a theory that the same may apply to our fear secretary. We may need some fear exercise here and there, because our environment is too safe. And part of uh, so many false alarms of fear and anxiety could be related to that, that our fear system is not working well. We are not using, we don't have, we are not exposed to a predator once in a while. So this fear system will work the way it should work in the real context it should work. So my heart is pounding when I'm giving a talk, which doesn't make sense. Right. So it's almost like we're, we're looking for, for things to be scared of. <laughs> and maybe that's why so many people have so much anxiety, too. That's true. That's true. A lot. And, and, and this, this system, the whole fear and anxiety system is confusing our modern life. Because let's say I'm giving a talk in a group of people and I feel anxious and my heart is pounding in my mouth and it's stupid. It's not helpful. But the reality is that 100,000 years ago, if I was among a group of people and they didn't like me, chances were that in a few minutes, one of us would be dead. So that's the whole, that's why the physical system has to be ready for it. But then it gets confused in the modern life situations, 
that there are challenges, but those challenges are not really dangerous to our existence, but the system handles them the same way. That's Arash Javanbakht. He is a psychiatrist and the director of the Stress, Trauma and Anxiety Research Clinic at Wayne State University School of Medicine in Detroit. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about fear and how it connects to excitement and other emotions. Comedian Jerry Seinfeld has a classic bit about two of the most common fears people have. I saw a thing, actually, a study that said speaking in front of a crowd is considered the number one fear of the average person. I found that amazing. Number two was death. (laughs) Death is number two? This means to the average person, if you have to be at a funeral, you would rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy. For some people, performing in front of a crowd makes them feel jittery, but just in the right amount so that they are laser-focused and actually do better. For others, it turns into a paralyzing terror. Reporter Jad Slayman has this story of a comedian whose stage fright got so out of hand she stopped performing. And he also looked into ways to calm frazzled nerves. This is from an annual competition called Philly's Funniest in 2019, held at Helium Comedy Club. Tara Hernan is about a year into stand-up at this point, and she's killing. It's not because of Will Smith, just because I feel like I can really relate to Aladdin. I feel like we have a lot of stuff in common uh, in the way that I also like free bread. She's making it look easy, but when we talk, she tells me it was anything but. I was... In the green room, literally pacing back and forth and having a panic attack. I was almost not about to go on. Tara has basically always wanted to be a stand-up comedian. And stage fright was always her biggest obstacle. She's felt this absolute terror come over her before any performance, no matter how small the audience, even in theater class. Reading a monologue, I ran off stage. And then the teacher was like, no, 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 you can't do that. And she made me get back on stage. She started doing stand-up by going to open mics performing in bars in the middle of the night. The stakes couldn't have been lower, but still, there was this fear, the nerves. I had this weird, crazy thing where I, like, I had to put chapstick on like the second before I walked on stage, or else I'd be like, maybe that's like superstition, I don't know. But the more she performed, the more comfortable she felt on stage. She got calmer, and eventually, she started getting good. I was getting booked pretty regularly. Like I was doing like two or three shows a week. I got booked at punchline. That's a 300-seat comedy club in Philadelphia, about as big as they get before they're more accurately called theaters. There was a comedy contest that I did. It was like for charity or whatever, and I won. But just as Tara was establishing herself, the pandemic hit. Comedians used to performing multiple sets a night were stuck at home with the rest of us. Tara didn't perform at all until that first pandemic summer as cases ebbed. The show was outdoors, on the steps outside a comedy club instead of on stage inside. Normally, when a comic looks out into the crowd, they only see the bright stage lights and darkness. Here, Tara saw the audience, their eyes all looking at her. And I was just like looking around at the people and I was like, I don't know any of these people. Like we're on the street. Like, And then I just said into the microphone, like I was just like, I don't know what's happening to me, you guys. Uh, I gotta go. And I just ran. 
At first, Tara didn't think this was a real threat to her comedy career. She'd been stressed by the pandemic, by just plain life. She thought, hey, it's just a rough night. More than anything, she felt embarrassed by all the concern her friends and fellow comedians showed. Everyone just kept asking if she was okay. They couldn't understand what was happening to her. This performer they were so used to watching in complete command of the stage. She had another show the following week. It was another outdoor gig, some kind of hippie music festival, as Tara describes it. But, like, a couple minutes before I was about to go up, the host was like, oh, you're next. And I was just, like, pacing back and forth. And I was drunk, too, so I thought that would help. She feared another panic attack would happen if she tried to go back on stage. And here it was. She could feel it coming on. My arms tingle. (laughs) And then I, like... Uh, get dizzy and I feel like I, I'm like in a tunnel and I get like a really like bad headache and I can't see outside of the tunnel that I'm in and then I um, shake uncontrollably you know yeah. and then I run she could hear the crowd a big one they were rowdy the comedian before her was wrapping up and Tara was running out of time she went to the host and simply told him Whatever you do, do not call my name. Do not call my name. I'm not going on stage. And then I cried anyway, so. (laughs) The host simply called the next comic instead. The show, as it must, went on. But Tara was stuck. I still was like, I didn't quit comedy. I'll do it tomorrow. Don't make me do it today. I'll do it tomorrow. Quitting comedy was inconceivable for Tara. She worked as a bartender at a comedy club and at a big comedy open mic. Most of her friends were comics. Night after night, she'd watch them between pouring drinks. As they went on stage and crushed or bombed, she'd watch new comics go up for the first time, sweating, voices cracking. She'd sign up to perform herself each night and always backed out at the last minute. Until finally, she stopped signing up. As time went on, fewer people saw Tara as coming to the stage, your next comedian is, and instead as... Tara behind the bar. Give it up for her, doing a great job taking care of us tonight. Around the same time, stage fright was effectively ending Tara's comedy career. A rapidly growing startup in California was starting to offer a cure for this problem, one that came in the form of a pill. The founder, a tech entrepreneur named Justin Ip, had been dealing with a very Silicon Valley type of performance anxiety himself. This paralyzing sense of panic during pitch meetings. Um, we were asking for $2 million. The, the full partnership was there. There's some pretty famous people in Silicon Valley in the room. Um, at least two billionaires that I know of. It was one of those make or break meetings. Does your idea get the money it needs to become the next big thing? The real world Shark Tank. Uh, and I remember just sitting in the room talking to these guys and there was just this you know, massive dead weight in my stomach. I was completely hunched over the table. It felt really hard to breathe. You know, I remember my legs were just crossed under the table um, and, and my legs were shaking and I was just trying to control the shaking. That particular deal fell through. When the next pitch came around for Justin's current venture, Justin did the pitch with the help of the very product they were going to sell. Little white pills called beta blockers. He popped some before the meeting. You know, it's kind of this weird feeling where your mind is like, I feel like I should be more nervous than my body feels right now. Like last time I was more nervous. But it, you know, it's, it's hard to say that you feel different. You just kind of feel like yourself. 
and you feel like there's nothing kind of getting in the way of, of you being yourself and, and putting on the best show that you can. Beta blockers are not a new drug. They've been prescribed for decades to treat high blood pressure. They work by slowing down the heart. For those with stage fright, that means that in the moment before you get on stage or make your big pitch, your heart rate stays put. And that is supposed to keep you calm. The drug has been prescribed off-label to all manner of performers basically since the 70s. Classical musicians, TV presenters, people working at elite levels of public performance knew about these drugs, but most people did not. Yeah, I mean, I, I heard about it and I was like, how come nobody knows about this? This is amazing. Like, all the top performers talk about this and use it. <laughs> like, why? And then I, I, you know, I know why, or I have some theories why. You know, this has been a cheap generic drug for 60 years, right? So... Like, it's hard for Big Pharma to put a ton of marketing dollars behind it. Justin says most of his customers are not performing artists. He's got lawyers with big cases coming up, salespeople with big meetings, students with presentations and exams. He says we all have these make-or-break moments where we need to perform. Even though Justin's company is growing, using beta blockers in the way they recommend does have its opponents. One of them is Stefan Hoffman, a professor of psychology at the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at Boston University. He says stage fright, performance anxiety, is a type of social anxiety. The reason things like public speaking and stand-up comedy can be so scary is because with so many eyes just on you, there's a lot of social risk. Evolutionarily, we want to be part of a, of a group and we don't want to be... Uh, expelled from our group. And, and social isolation is a major punisher uh, you know, in, in our society. If we somebody breaks the law, we send them to prison. And that's what we do. We break off social contact. So being sort of the center of attention is for that reason threatening because you might be excluded from the social group. Instead of drugs, he advocates for cognitive behavioral therapy, basically changing the way you think about socially frightening situations. He calls beta blockers a kind of pharmacological avoidance, that those who perform using them never actually confront their performance anxiety. Taking a beta blocker is from a vantage point of a psychotherapist who's treating social anxiety, sort of a typical way of avoiding your fear and your anxiety. And actually in treatment, that's exactly what we're trying to eliminate, those kind of avoidance strategies. So people need to feel fearful and anxious in order to overcome their fear and anxiety. Beta blockers don't allow you to do that. He's also not convinced that they can work. Not that well, anyway. Anxiety is a, is a, is a complex construct that includes the way you think, the way you feel, and the way you behave. Anna Lemke is professor of psychiatry at Stanford University. She also advocates for therapy over drugs, for graded exposure therapy, basically doing the thing that scares you. What happens is it's not that we stop um, having an adrenaline surge right before we perform, but we have a more muted adrenaline surge. And also we don't become anxious in the face of that adrenaline surge. She says if you don't learn how to adapt to that adrenaline surge, you also don't learn how to use it to your advantage. What do people look for in a live performance? They want someone who's alive, right? The flip side of anxiety is, is energy, right? So it's a, it's a way of figuring out how to take anxiety and flip it, essentially, turn it into a positive. 
If the experience is less intense for a performer, Anna says it's almost certainly less intense for the audience. Audiences will mirror a performer, feel what they feel. In stand-up, it's a common trick for the comedian to laugh at their own jokes. Even though they already know the punchline, even though they've told it a hundred times, it signals, hey, this is funny. We're having fun. I mean, we absolutely have this incredible ability to tune into each other's emotions. And, and there's a very powerful effect when a performer can make that kind of emotional connection with an audience. As for Tara, she didn't end up using beta blockers or CBT or graded exposure therapy. She used a magic eight ball. She was hanging out with a comedian friend when they consulted the magic eight ball. Would Tara return to stand up this month? The eight ball said yes. And Tara, for some reason, decided to obey. She and that comic friend drove to a small town about an hour away from Philadelphia. Tara signed her name on the open mic list at the bar. And I even tried to back out that day, up until the last second. Literally, I went up to the host, and I was I was next. And I was like, don't, call me up. I don't want to go up. I changed my mind. I don't want to go up. And he was like, ah, oh, you can't. It turns out her friend had told the host, hey, Tara's going to try to back out. Don't let her. So he called my name up, and I had to go up. And once I got up there, I was shaking, and... I was scared and I hated it. And I'm pretty sure you could hear in my voice how nervous I was. But also, the second I got up there, I remembered what it felt like to do stand-up. And I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It felt good. After two years, she was back on stage talking into a mic, getting strangers to laugh. I'm like, hell yeah, I'm so cool. These people think I'm so hot and funny. (laughs) I can see it in their eyes. They think I'm hot and funny. It was terrible. It was awesome. But... She was back. The next night, there was another open mic, this time back in Philadelphia, at that big open mic where she bartends, in front of all her friends and fellow comics. She went up last in the lineup, around one in the morning. When her name was called, the room exploded. It was a surprise for everyone. And the amount of screams like and cheers that I got, I was like, this is never going to happen again. No one is ever going to cheer for me like this ever the again. Tara behind the bar took the stage. For The Pulse, I'm Jad Slayman. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, a lot of us want to shed our fears from time to time. Just feel calmer. But be careful what you wish for. We'll meet the man with no fear. I want to find out if there is a breaking point where fear will kick back in. That's still to come on The Pulse. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about fear and how it overlaps with other emotions like excitement. Think of all the different types of fear. The thrilling kind you get riding a roller coaster or maybe going bungee jumping. The nervous fear of public speaking or being in a job interview. Or just the vague, formless fear of daily anxiety that something will go wrong, you just don't know what. Now, imagine all of that fear just disappearing like a puff of smoke. Sounds like that would be nice, right? But Jordi Cernick found out that it has major drawbacks. Liz Tung has his story. 
It started with sudden, inexplicable weight gain. Weight he couldn't seem to lose no matter what. Then Jordy Cernick noticed he was sweating profusely. His mood spiraled. He lost his job as a TV presenter, which had helped support his family. Finally, Jordy was diagnosed with Cushing's disease. A benign tumor in his pituitary gland was pushing his adrenals into overdrive, causing an overproduction of the stress hormone cortisol. Over the next five years, Jordy went through four grueling, unsuccessful surgeries, three to remove the pituitary tumor, one to attempt to remove his adrenal glands. All of them failed. And the fourth almost killed him when cranial fluids leaking from his brain led to pneumonia and then meningitis. Finally, the fifth surgery took. The adrenal glands were gone for good this time. But when Jordy woke up from that one, he felt different. I just didn't care anymore. If I could die the next day and I wouldn't have been bothered. It was like a switch. That's the easiest way to put it. I went to sleep with fear and I woke up the next day without it. But Jordy didn't realize right away just how much had changed. He spent a few months recovering. His long, horrible journey to treat his Cushing's disease was over. He quickly lost the extra weight and tried to get used to the battery of medications and hormones that he'd have to take for the rest of his life. Now that things were mostly back to normal, Jordy wanted to revive his media career. So he started working for a local radio station. And they told him they were doing a fundraiser for kids called Superhero Day that they needed volunteers for. Would you fancy jumping out of an airplane dressed as a superhero? And I, why not? Now, in the past, I would have gone, no, no, don't we? I'm not. No, that's not for me. But I just went, yeah, no problem at all. Jordy had always been an anxious person, not the kind of guy who'd want to jump out of airplanes. But now he was game. He decided to dress up as a superhero from his childhood called Banana Man. His wife hired a camera crew to film the jump. Jordy remembers sitting in the plane, strapped to his instructor, as they circled round and round, waiting to jump. And the moment I knew I didn't, there was something completely wrong was when the door opened, people had gone out, and he shuffled me along, and my legs were hanging out of a plane, and all I could see was clouds and a little dot on the bottom, like this must have been something like, I don't know, maybe a house or something, but it was tiny. We were 19, I think 19 or 20,000 feet up, and I felt nothing. They tipped out of the plane and started to fall. Still, Jordy felt nothing. The instructor pulled the ripcord, and the fall turned into a peaceful float. When they landed, a camera guy ran up to Jordy, followed by his wife and kids. He tried his best to look excited. And they went, did you have a great day? Yeah, it was brilliant. And I tried to look as enthusiastic as, even, as I could, but even my wife said that he didn't look enthusiastic at all. And we were walking off the field and I just said to my wife, I went, there's something wrong. I didn't feel a thing. He didn't feel scared. He didn't feel excited. He didn't get that feeling in your stomach, like when you're on a roller coaster and it starts to fall. She was going, oh, you're joking. You must have been just the adrenaline. I went, well, I haven't got adrenaline. I don't have adrenal, so I'm didn't feel a single thing. I didn't even flinch when we went out. Jordy knew what he'd experienced, but he wasn't sure how it was possible. His doctors told him that losing your sense of fear simply isn't something that can happen, whether you have your adrenal glands or not, because fear is way more complex than just adrenaline. And yet, Jordy had jumped out of a plane without so much as a flinch. Slowly, word about this man with no fear spread. And eventually, Jordy got contacted by the BBC, 
They were doing a program about people around the world who had strange medical conditions. And they were fascinated by Jordi, the man with no fear. And they said, we wanted to have your story on. But the only problem is your, your story is kind of really hard to prove. So we're going to have to test yours because we have to prove to the audience that it's real and you're not just making it up. Jordi agreed immediately. Over the past few years, he'd become convinced that the whole loss of fear thing wasn't just in his head, but his doctors weren't. And even if they did believe him, they couldn't tell him why it was happening. This would be Jordi's chance to understand what was going on inside his brain and body. So the BBC found a fear researcher and took Jordi to rappel down the tallest rappelling tower in the world, which is in the East Midlands of England. The researcher fitted Jordi with skin conductance monitors, which are used to measure arousal levels. They gave Jordi a quick crash course on the rappelling and then set him loose at the top of the 400-plus foot tower. So I literally went over the edge and just went down. And when I got to the bottom, I was in tears. Not because he was afraid, which Jordi says is what some of the people there assumed, but because it had hit him as he descended. Again, he couldn't feel a thing. Well, that, plus the whole exercise turned out to be incredibly painful, thanks to what Jordi would later find out was brittle bone syndrome, resulting from all the steroids he had to take. Afterwards, the producers asked Jordi to do it once more. They needed more camera angles, they said. So again, Jordi repelled down the tower. Afterwards, they filmed him meeting with the fear researcher. She showed him what the monitors had captured. Now, she first said, now, it looks like the monitors aren't working and they're broken. But if you notice here, there's a little tiny bump and then it flatlines again. So I know 100% guarantee that the monitors are working because they had already done it twice as well to check it. And the monitor was basically me going over the edge and it was the pain of lifting myself with the ropes. So how did Jordy feel when he finally got the confirmation that he really had lost his sense of fear? Relieved because I thought I was making it up. And I thought people were saying, oh, you're lying. But it was able to prove it there and then to everybody that, you know, what I felt was real and, and what I felt was nothing. Jordy's doctors were never able to figure out exactly what caused him to lose his sense of fear. He told me they think it might have to do with all the brain operations he had and the meningitis. They think maybe it killed the part of his brain that deals with his fear response. That, plus the loss of his adrenals, has led to something nearly unprecedented. No fear at all. Losing his sense of fear has been a massive trade-off for Jordy. He says he was always an anxious person. He had an unstable childhood, complete with stints in a children's home, and he never truly felt like he fit in. The Cushing's made his anxiety worse, both because of the extra cortisol and because of how it was affecting his life. Gaining weight, losing his job, wondering what was going on with his body. And let's not forget Jordy's terrifying medical experiences with all the surgeries, from having his brain juices leaking out of his nose to almost dying from meningitis. He remembers one night in particular, when he was lying alone in the ICU, wondering if he was going to die wondering if his death would be painful, if he was about to leave his wife and two kids without a husband and a father. It was as pure a sense of fear as Jordy had ever experienced. But now, all of a sudden, 
that lifetime of anxiety, the worries about his family and his job, the terror he felt facing death, it was all gone. The trade-off part was what he lost. For instance, his sense of excitement. Shortly after shooting the BBC program, Jordy and his wife decided to take their kids on a trip to Disney World. It was supposed to be a celebration, a chance for the family to blow off some steam and enjoy life after everything they'd been through. His kids, of course, were excited to go on all the rides. But for Jordy, it ended up being a huge letdown. It was so disappointing to think, that's, I suppose that's when it really hit me that I'm not going to have that fear anymore. That the fear that is actually the fun side of fear, you know, being scared, watching movies, going on these rides at um, like Disneyland's and jumping out of airplanes. And it isn't just skydiving and theme park rides either. Jordy says he doesn't get excited for holidays anymore. He doesn't get excited about seeing his kids perform in shows or his upcoming wedding anniversary. Jordy has spent years trying to work out how exactly he feels about the whole thing. I, I get jealous sometimes seeing people enjoy themselves on that level. Um, but then on the other level, I can look at myself and think, well, actually, I can do quite anything I want now. And that's what Jordy's trying to do. Shortly before COVID hit, he was making plans to do a wing walk, which is where you walk across the wings of an airplane while it's in flight. That, unfortunately, was cancelled. He also wants to stand atop the Burj Khalifa, the world's tallest building, a la Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible, and to climb Mount Everest. But why, if he doesn't feel fear or excitement, would Jordy want to put himself through these grueling physical tests? Prove to myself that I can do it. That's all it is. It's just, I don't call them excitements. I don't do that. I call them tests because I'm not trying to prove to myself that I've got, got no fear. I'm trying to get myself into a situation where I do have fear. I want to find out if there is a breaking point where fear will kick back in. You know, get to a point where it's so scary that my body just has to, has to, it's the only way it's going to survive is have fear. It's something Jordy's unintentionally tested a few times in his normal life. He says when he's driving, he has to be extra careful because he finds himself thinking he can just squeeze through an intersection when his rational brain knows that he'd likely crash. A few times, he says he's almost been hit by cars because he steps into the road without looking. But he says there have also been good parts to losing his sense of fear. My wife's definitely noticed that I don't worry as much. Like, I don't worry at all, actually, no, because <laughs> um, I did used to worry quite a lot. I definitely aren't. I'm not as anxious or panicky as I used to be. At the end of our conversation, I asked Jordy a question, one that I thought I already knew the answer to. If he could get his sense of fear back, would he want it? No, I wouldn't want it. I, I know what I was like when I was younger and before this happened, what having fear was like to me. It was, it was, you know, quite overpowering when I was, before I got took away. I suppose, I suppose it's been a godsend on that stage. Like I say, not being able to sleep at night with the thing in my head that I was going to pass away or what was going to happen when I died and all this kind of stuff. Anxiety, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. To to get my fear back would be just to basically go on roller coasters and have that kind of thrill side of it. I'm more than happy not to have that if it's a trade-off where I don't get any of that back and I don't have to panic and I don't have to worry about stuff and I don't have to go over past stuff and have PTSD from what's happened to us in the air. No, I'll stay the way I am. Thank you very much. (laughs) That story was reported by Liz Tang. 
That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Jad Slayman. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Nicole Curry is our associate producer. And she told us about one of her fears. So my most irrational fear is having a bird poop on me. I know it sounds a little weird, but I have witnessed birds pooping on some of my friends, uh, two of them, and the secondhand embarrassment was just unreal. So every time I see like birds, especially like flying in unison, I try to look for shelter. Just run and Lindsay Lazarski is our producer. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. And I'm afraid of everything. <laughs> Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.